If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And in the morning, um, he is said to have picked up a clod of blood-soaked earth and to have said that no matter how long it takes me, no matter where it takes me in the world, I'm going to kill the men responsible for this. That was Anita Armand on one man's quest for vengeance after the Amritsar massacre. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This month, we've marked the centenary of the Amritsar massacre, when hundreds of civilians were mown down by troops under British command in colonial India. It was one of the worst atrocities in the British Empire and is an incident that continues to reverberate today. Among the books published for the anniversary is The Patient Assassin, in which BBC radio journalist Anita Arnand explores one of the most remarkable tales to emerge from the events of 1919. Our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn met up with Anita in London a little while back to find out more. To start us off, can you give listeners an idea, the elevator pitch essentially, of what the patient assassin is all about? So 100 years ago, uh, in a walled garden in Amritsar, the British marched a a bunch of troops into this this place, Jallianwalabagh, where there were thousands of uh, civilians, unarmed civilians. Some were there for a political rally, and some were there because it happens to be one of the biggest picnic spots in that area. It's very near the Golden Temple. And without issuing any order to disperse, uh, Brigadier General Dyer ordered his men to open fire. Um, the number of people who were killed, that is disputed between India and Great Britain, and I think that dispute will carry on. But 1,650 bullets were fired, and pretty much each one uh, found a target. So although the Brits say 379 were killed, uh, Congress at the time did their own report and they said over a thousand people were killed. My grandfather was in that garden the day of the massacre. Um, He left minutes before the firing started, a real quirk of fate. He wasn't, I mean, it would actually sort of be much more romantic if I said my grandfather was this great nationalist who was there fighting for freedom. He wasn't. He was there. He was a 17-year-old kid. 
He was there because he'd been sent by his dad to do a deal for sewing machines, secondhand sewing machines. And he left and he told his friends, look, hold my place. I will come back and I'll be back for pudding in in effect. Um, But when he came back, he couldn't get near the place and he found in the morning that his friends were killed. And so he lived with survivor's guilt for the rest of his life. And that's kind of been woven into my DNA. According to um, legend, another young man was in the garden that day, a man called Udham Singh, who was just a little bit older than my grandfather. And he, uh, according to legend, was forced to stay in that garden all night as people bled out to death around him. A curfew was declared that night. No medical aid was allowed in to the people who'd been shot. And in the morning, um, he is said to have picked up a clod of blood-soaked earth and to have said that no matter how long it takes me, no matter where it takes me in the world, I'm going to kill the men responsible for this. It's a really big vow for someone like him to make. He was a low-caste orphan. He was the, the meanest of the mean in India, you know, right, barely educated. And the patient assassin is him because it's the 20 years it takes him to transform himself into a man who one day in 1940 can swagger into a hall in Westminster at a time of war and he shoots dead the former Lieutenant Governor of Punjab twice through the heart at point blank range. So that is the story of the patient assassin. I think for a lot of people in Britain, um, the name Udan Singh will not be familiar. Can you tell us a bit about his legacy in India and how he's remembered elsewhere in the world? In India, he is one of this pantheon of heroes. Um, There are stamps with his face on it. Um, There are streets named after him. There are areas in Punjab that carry his name because he is a hero. He is said to be this avenging angel for, for this massacre that is still pretty much an open wound in the North Indian, particularly the North Indian psyche. Um, and it is very, very strange that somebody who on Martyr's Day, people light candles in front of him and they garland um, pictures of him with, with, with marigolds. He's completely unknown here. In 1940, he shook the world. I mean, his actions in 1940 um, were, they resonated around the world, but he's only really known in India today, but known by most people. If you say the name of them, sing, they'll know who you're talking about. Um, to circle back round to the massacre, um, which triggered this whole chain of events that the book covers, um, there are some pretty hideous accounts of the massacre. Um, can you give us an idea of, of what the experience was like for those trapped in that square that day? Uh, you're right, they are, they are hideous accounts. Um, there are accounts we have from people who were in the garden and those who watched it were forced to watch it. So you've got to, let me just describe the geography of the garden, because when I say garden, it doesn't really um, do it justice. It is the size of about three football pitches. It's surrounded by tenement buildings, which is why there's only one entrance into this place, one real entrance. You can walk in three abreast and and no more. It's a narrow, narrow entrance. There are little bits where the buildings don't quite join together, where a person can kind of squeeze through, but they're not real exits. And there are flat roofs over the top. So what people describe is, and what we also have accounts from the people who were there with the Brigadier General's forces at the time, was that he ordered his men to walk in by a perimeter wall and immediately open fire. He ordered them to swivel round to where the crowds were running. There's no cover in this garden. It's called a garden. It's rather prosaic. It's just a dusty square of land. And there is a well in the middle. Um, and he ordered them to follow the crowds where they were thickest. 
And so bodies piled up near the perimeter wall where people were desperate to try and get out and get over, and they couldn't because the walls were too high. People described watching their friends and neighbours being shot, I mean, pretty much like fish in a barrel. And they had to endure 10 minutes of firing. We just imagine that 10 minutes of sustained firing as these soldiers fired at unarmed civilians. The youngest um, was six months old. One of the oldest was 80. Um, So it was absolutely horrendous what happened there. And what happened the the long night that followed is also unbearable. You know, we have this awful account from this woman who cradled her dead husband. She went to go and find him before curfew descended. And she talks about having to drag his body out of pools of blood. And then sort of, she just wants to get it out of the blood. And so she asks a man to help and she's there and she can hear the whimpering of a little boy who's nearby, who's asking for water, but she has no water to give him. So she says, and he keeps saying, I'm cold, I'm cold. And she has nothing to wrap him with until his voice kind of dwindles to nothing and she knows that he's bled out. And she describes having to get a stick to keep the wild dogs away from her husband. And that was the experience of people in that garden that night. How did the events um, in Amritsar uh, over that evening and and the days that followed, um, how did they fit into a wider picture of what was happening in India at the time and the calls for independence? Well, I mean, to many, it was the turning point. It was the point where Gandhi um, said there was no chance now of, of sharing power with the British. He had, up till that point, been asking for some more powers to be extended to the native population, as they called them at the time. But at that point, he said, right, you're going to get out. You've got to get out now. That's it. That's all there's going to be. Um, people like Rabindranath Tagore, who was a Nobel Prize winning um, uh, poet, he returned his knighthood saying, I, I don't want anything, any accolade from a country that could do this. For the British, it it was read in a different way. Um, There had been um, outbreaks of violence in the run-up to the massacre. There had, I mean, it's very important to say that there had been days of peace before the massacre took place. So this suggestion that they were quelling a rebellion is is a little out of place. Uh, But there had been, there had been outbreaks of violence as the demands for freedom grew louder. So to take you back even, even a little further, this is just after the war. So this is just after World War One, where Punjab has sent so many of its sons to fight and die with the British. And they do so under the impression that people like Gandhi have told them, in fact, who was a major recruiter for the war, that if you send your boys, a grateful nation will give us our freedom. And instead of getting freedom, what they come back to is after the war, a place where, particularly in Punjab, there are even more rules and regulations that suppress their freedom and declare any kind of criticism of the British sedition, um, you know, abrogate laws which we take for granted at the moment that you can be arrested and thrown into prison without knowing what you're even charged with. And so there's this bubbling resentment, which then becomes this flash of rage after Jallianwalabagh. There is fear of the British because people don't quite believe that they could have done this. But the independence movement then gathers a momentum, which I think is inexorable. And and, and it just, you know, you can't stop it after that. Um, As well as Tracing Singh, you also follow the fallout of the massacre in Britain through um, Reginald Dyer, who um, was the man who kind of executed it, and also Michael O'Donnell. Dwyer, very confusingly. It is, yes, it is. So yes, yes, unhelpfully um, 
similarly named, yes. Who was, um, what was he? Sorry, I'm just kidding. Was he vice? No, he was the, the lieutenant governor of okay, yeah. Punjab. So he was the head of government in, yeah. in the north of India. So who was the head of government in um, the Punjab? How was the massacre viewed back in Britain and kind of processed? At first, the uh, official line that went out from Punjab was that Dyer had done a really important thing because he'd quelled a rebellion. There were these fears that these um, sporadic outbreaks of violence would amount to another 1857-type mutiny where Europeans would be killed in great numbers, and they were in 1857. And so the lieutenant governor, Sir Michael, um, is is really firmly of the belief that this is going to happen on his watch and he he's twitchy about it from the moment he takes the reins of power there. When the massacre occurs, the message that goes back immediately to England is that Dyer did the right thing. Dyer stopped terrible violence from spiralling out of control. But then the Indians start sending people and collecting evidence and what actually happened there, you know, there was... There are some terrible examples of, uh, of violence that occur and humiliation that occur after the massacre, which are arguably sort of as damaging. There's a crawling order that General Dyer puts out that um, people going along a certain lane in Amritsar where a, a woman missionary has been attacked should do so on their bellies, crawling like insects. And there is so much uh, humiliation involved in that. These stories go out from the north and they proliferate India and they turn India against the British. So even moderate nationalists who believed in sort of, you know, this third way, if you like, they become more radicalised. It radicalises a generation of young men as well who say they will fight them. But in Britain, that story keeps percolating that no, 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 this was a good thing. However, then there's this, this inquiry that goes on, pressure from India on the Secretary of State, a man called Montague, that, you know, this is, this is the whole of India looks as though it may erupt in, in revulsion at what's happened. So the Hunter Inquiry takes place, which then provides evidence. And it's the first time, really, although Indians have been trying to smuggle out news of what actually happened, um, it is then presented openly before the British uh, in this inquiry where the majority of the panel are white English, the minority are Indian, and there is dissent at the end because the Indians don't think it goes far enough. The Hunter Inquiry agrees that what Dyer did, what the Brigadier General did, was, in Churchill's words, monstrous. You know, it was an overreaction. There was no cause for it, and there were ways to avoid it. Um, and so it starts changing. Then there's a debate. There's an eviscerating debate. But it's on fire. You know, the words are on fire during this debate where there are members of parliament who are screaming at each other, more boisterous than anything we see over Brexit. And they are pointing up at the gallery where Dyer and O'Dwyer are sitting and listening and accusing them of doing the most heinous things to a population that has been loyal until now. As you mentioned before, Udham Singh, he, whether he was there or not, is is contested. Could you run us through some of the um, possibilities of his connection to the massacre? So he, we know that he was a, a, a young man who signed up to fight for, with the British. He was this sort of orphan, no hoper, and like many, you know, the, their best chance at that time, if you didn't have anywhere to live and you don't have any money, is like sign up. You're promised a lot if you sign up to join um, the army. And he goes and he he serves in Basra. 
Um, but then he comes back. And again, he like many of the soldiers who went and were promised so much, he comes back and he sees he's got nothing. So he gets involved at a very low level with um, the independence movement. So he's like a, a pamphleteer, like one of these young boys who stuffs bundles of, of pamphlets from people like Gandhi saying, you know, we've got to argue, we've got to stand up for our rights and we've got to wrestle for what is right and what is right is freedom. But these are a lot of these are, are nonviolent. You know, they come from Gandhi and his followers. They're nonviolent resistance, you know, extolling people to resist, but not to hurt people. Um, Udham Singh, it's believed, ha- was one of these sort of leaflet, low-level carriers. Um, so there are three trains of thought about where he was. Um, some say and insist that he was there in the garden, this, this legend of Udham Singh, that he ga- gathered up this clod of earth, and that's why he did what he did. That's why he don- devoted the next 20 years of his life to his vengeance. It was because he heard the same whimpering of the little boy that we know this woman uh, from her first-hand account gives us and, and saw the horror of that. There is another that he wasn't there at all and that he was something of a... Some people have written him off as like a water mitty type character who just fastened himself to something noble, to do something which was ignoble in the end, you know, which was to murder an old man in cold blood. Um, I think that there is something in between that. And I think because it's the most banal explanation, it's probably the most credible, is that because he was one of those people who handed out the leaflets and got many to turn up to that meeting, but wasn't there himself, he too was driven by this sense of, of guilt that, you know, he had sent people to die in the garden. And also that he really wanted to have been there, you know, that he wanted to have been there with his countrymen. And so that kind of drove him in many ways, to, to, to do what he did and, and undoubtedly become obsessed with revenge. I think that raises a really interesting point, um, which runs throughout the book, which is that a lot of Singh's life was led under aliases and he was quite often trying to slip under the radar. As a historian, how do you go about trying to um, keep track of him over the 20 years? It's re- I mean, it's really difficult. It's the most difficult thing I've ever had to do, to be honest. But that's where you, you put on your investigative journalist hat. So there was a confession that he gave. He was arrested in 1927 for gun running. And he gives this confession, um, which is kind of must have sounded wild and mad to the people taking the confession. Um, where he talks about what he was doing and, and where he was, um, and particularly about his American adventure. Now, you know, first of all, you have to establish whether you think that is a real confession and whether it really happened. And then you have to try and establish whether what he says is true. And the way you go about doing that, if you're a journalist especially, is you try and find corroboration in things that are you can't argue with like census papers, addresses, names that he's given in that confession, which then you find exist. And they didn't make sense in the confession. He talks about a man called Joe Henry, who apparently helps him a lot in America, which makes no sense. Why would a man called Joe Henry help until you find in the census paper that this is a man who changed his name? He was uh, he was an Indian. He was a Singh and a Sikh and quite possibly one of those Singhs who was involved in the Gadda movement, which is a revolutionary movement. And then you think, right, okay, now that has veracity. So you sort of very, you take very ginger steps. And sometimes when you're not sure, you just have to say, I'm not sure. And I do that um, very happily in the book. But, you know, where there is compelling evidence, I show it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. One thing I found especially interesting about the book was that I thought when I started it was going to be largely based in India, the Raj, or Britain. It's a really transnational adventure. It touches on Prohibition America and Uganda. Can you tell us a bit about the international events that Singh's life weirdly intertwined with? Well, you know, when he he left India um, after having this sort of failed military career where he had amounted to nothing. He had no heroic stories to tell. He was actually a bit of a bother when he went over there. He was immature. Um, He may have been too young to sign up. And yet, you know, and we know that a lot of people turned blind eyes to that just because the need for men was so great uh, during World War I. But then he ends up going to East Africa to work on the railways there, like so many. So it's a, it's a story of migration, apart from anything else. You know, this was a pattern of, of movement, and it's also quite a contemporary story in, in many ways. So he goes and he works on the, they call it the lunatic line. It's a, a, a railway. The British were brilliant at, at logistics and building railways. They understood the, the importance of that, that if you want to trade in a country, but also make sure your troops get to areas of trouble, you need a railway to get things moving very quickly. So he works on the lunatic line. And it's there that he meets many more disaffected people. So he actually gets plugged into the Gadda movement, this this violent movement in East Africa rather than in India. In India, he's just one of many faceless orphans, you know, who's going to take him seriously. But in East Africa, there's a smaller pool and he rises to the top. So when he comes back, he has a slightly greater belief in his own abilities and his own potential. They let him believe that. And he's like Tom Ripley. I always sort of think he's very much like a Tom Ripley character. He will learn anything and everything from people along the way and discard them when they fulfill their their role in his life. So he ends up going to America, which is the headquarters of the Gather Movement in California, as a low-level driver. But he's then, you know, you get to talk about the American dream, which is, you know, the immigrant experience of of those first Indians who went out there at a time when immigration was not welcome. Non-white immigration was certainly not welcome. Um, He marries a Mexican woman, you know, and therefore becomes sort of one of these standard bearers for a whole generation of, of, of relationships, which were really sad in many ways, you know, where 
Indian men were not allowed to own property, but Mexican women were. So they married Mexicans. They've had property in their name and then sometimes just abandoned them. And and of them seems to have done that. Um, But then it's sort of this trip that he sort of circles back to because he's trying to get to England. He's trying to be the man who can, can have the confidence, the language and the connections and the money to be in situ, like the sleeper assassin. How does he do that? Well, the Russians are there. So, you know, we talk about Russian interference now. Russian interference then between the two world wars was at its peak. You know, you had this idea that the revolution was going to be spread. You know, the Comintern, the the Russian Comintern talked about it openly, that we will spread this revolution using India and Indians. And so very gratefully, he sort of falls in line with that too. And it's really troublesome when you're a writer and you're trying to write something which sounds like a really simple, you know, the elevator pitch story that I told you. It's a story about revenge. But then it becomes a story about international politics. And uh, then you suddenly find your neurons are on fire and you have a lot more research to do than you ever thought. It's a really contemporary story of a, of a young man, a dispossessed young man who turns to violence. I think that that in itself is quite interesting. You know, that we, we often talk about radicalization, and I think the patient assassin is a is a classic story of radicalization. Here you have a young, angry man, and you can argue that he has reasons to be angry. Certainly after the massacre, he has reasons to be angry. Why is it so easy for him, for this potential life, a life that could have had constructive meaning, could have, you know, he could have been happy. Why was it that he didn't do that? Why did he take the left path rather than the right path? Um, And that's because there is a great deal of, you know, sort of international Machiavellianism going on, which enables him to Tom Ripley his way from India through, you know, East Africa, all the way through America, through Eastern Europe and Russia and come back and be this person. And that's because, you know, angry young men are fodder for people with greater designs. Now, did he do it because somebody with a a greater plan asked him to? I don't think so. I think he did it on his own cognizance. But that he, who put the gun in his hand and who gave him the motivation to shoot? I think those are interesting questions which which are relevant today. So when Singh finally did catch up with O'Dwyer in 1940 and shot him at point blank range, what was the impact of that? Did it fuel the fires of the independence movement or was it simply the fulfilment of a personal vendetta? Well, I think Udham Singh hoped he would be the catalyst for a revolution. He hoped that his action would show that one man can make this enormous difference, can walk into Westminster of all places and settle the score. And therefore, he wanted to inspire other Indians to rise up the same way. I mean, the name that he chose, he chose a moniker. Um, When he was arrested, he didn't say, my name is Udham Singh. He said, my name is Muhammad Singh Azad. And it's a really important name. Muhammad is a Muslim name. Singh is a Sikh name. Azad means freedom. So, you know, the message was really clear. Just read my name and know why I did this. But he's out of step with the Congress leadership at the time. The Congress leadership is Gandhi and Nehru. And they are taking great pains to argue that Indians can be trusted and we're not savages and we, you know, we we don't, we're not violent. You need to come and talk to us about how you're going to leave, but you are going to have to leave. So what he does, what Udham Singh does, although he thinks it's going to spark a revolution, you've got these leaders who completely wash their hands of him at the time. So, you know, he's kind of a man standing alone. Um, does he start a revolution? No, not then, but 
the sentiment when what he has done sort of percolates through India, despite the Congress leaders, it certainly stirs the population and arguably it makes it even more untenable for the British to stay. How has his story been repackaged and retold down the years? Um, Towards the end of the book, you mentioned that his body was returned to India under Indira Gandhi. Yeah, so he was he was hanged at Pentonville Prison for what he did. Um, and it was a really horrendous hanging, a botched hanging at that, which, you know, I've only just found out about. Um, documents have just come to light to, to show how badly that went. And he was thrown into an unmarked grave, and that's where the British hoped he would remain. But after the British left, it was almost as if there was now permission to celebrate the heroes in the view of many nationalists who had made this happen, this possibility. And they, they, you know, people didn't just uh, praise Gandhi and Nehru and their ilk, but they they started praising those who were violent against the British, people like Bhagat Singh and Udham Singh in particular. And this movement starts growing that we have to bring our boy home. He did this for us, we have to bring him home, especially in Punjab. It was really important. And so Indira Gandhi, um, with some diplomatic... Um, fleet footwork, which I still can't believe it worked, gets him disinterred from Pentonville. And he comes back, his body comes back to India in the 70s to a hero's welcome. It's like a state visit. So he's welcomed by um, the most senior politicians of Punjab and of Congress. His body does a tour of Punjab, where everywhere it goes, it is met with streets which are lined with people and they throw petals in his wake. And he is given a cremation in his hometown of Sunam, where it's described like a bride coming home to her village. The place is lit up with candles and lights and people who are weeping and crying out his name. And his his one wish, which is to unite all the creeds of India, sort of almost comes true with his ashes. You know, they're dispersed among Hindus, Muslims and uh, Sikh shrines so that they can they can respect him. So even though he never, never gets to know it, he fulfills his mission, which is the people should have their pride back and they should all be as one. After spending all the time working on this book, how do you think we should remember him, reflect on him? Was he a fantasist? Was he a martyr? Was he a hero? Was he a villain? Well, it's so the fantasist thing, no, he wasn't a fantasist. I mean, he, he had a, an extraordinary belief in his own importance. Um, which you might say is a bit crazy, no, crazed, actually. But he, and and the fact that he uses and discards people along the way does not speak well of him. The fact that he believes that there should be this united push against the British you can sympathise with, particularly when you have spent as long as I have looking at the things that were done uh, in the name of the Raj, which we don't speak about here. I was born and brought up here. We don't get taught this kind of thing. You know, the, the, the Raj is all rose-tinted spectacles and polo matches at sundown. It, we don't talk about this kind of thing. Was he heroic? Um, I personally don't approve of cold-blooded murder. I don't. You know, I find it really difficult. Although I understand his motivations and I understand the hurt of the people, I just myself don't think that cold-blooded murder is the answer, but that's just the way I'm wired. Um, Was he a martyr? Well, he died for his cause. So strictly speaking, he died for a cause and that fulfills some form of that definition. Uh, Was he a hero? It's a really difficult one. It's a really difficult one. He's certainly regarded as a hero. I mean, in India, they do Bollywood films about him. There are songs about him. You know, he he is regarded as a hero. 
it just depends, I suppose, whether you think the ends justify the means. Mm. And I, I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit torn about it because I was born and brought up to fear because of what happened. My grandfather's, you know, sort of tied to this, and 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 because my family is from the Punjab, I was born to fear those names, Dyer and O'Dwyer, down to my bone marrow. Really frightened of those names. They were like boogeymen, you know. But when you sort of start researching and start trying to understand their motivations as well, they were products of their era as well. They were products of this belief that this is how Britain retained the whip hand over India. And so you start understanding all sorts of people that you may not like, and you start having sympathy with people that may surprise you. Um, And you just, I think, end up, if you, you have to, or I had to, just tell the story. Actually, you know, I just had to tell the story. So, you know, I'm not sure who the heroes and villains are. As I called him the patient assassin, I didn't give him a heroic name. In 2013, David Cameron became the first serving prime minister to visit the site of the Amritsar massacre. And there were a lot of calls for him to make an outright apology. What are your thoughts about whether the British establishment should apologise for what happened 100 years ago? And more widely, whether apologies from today's establishment are relevant or useful for imperial wrongdoings more widely? Well, so, so let me give you two um, distinct answers. One is one is um, standing back from it and from a political standpoint as a, as a political journalist. And the other I'll give you a personal as well. So politically speaking, we have a country right now post-Brexit that is looking to have closer ties with places like India. They talk about trade with India. And I'm telling you that this is an open wound in India's psyche it would be helpful, wouldn't it, to make that wound less painful, to say, actually, we've dis- we've already described it as monstrous. Cameron repeated that when he went in 2013. It's not a great reach to say, we're sorry. We're sorry that happened. And that's not us. It's a small thing. And it just eases a lot of pain, I think. Personally, um, I had a very strange experience where I reached out to um, one of the descendants of General Dyer, and I invited her to my house. And that's just happened in the last few days. So we, she came over and uh, we talked for hours. And I, I very much liked her. I mean, she's very loyal to her great-grandfather. She doesn't think what he did was wrong. She thinks what he did, he had to do. We disagree about that. We very much disagree about that. And she said, she actually asked me, she said, do you want me to say sorry? And I, and I hadn't thought about it, you know, face-to-face with someone... And I said, well, what, what your great-grandfather did really did destroy my grandfather in many ways. He, it really did. You know, he was a, he was, he suffered because of that day. He went blind, my grandfather, I should say, very early in life. And whenever anyone tried to sympathise with him and say, I'm sorry, this, you're losing your sight, he would say, no, don't, because God granted me my life that day. It's only right. He should take the light from my eyes. There has to be some payment at some point. And he, he was really hurt. By it. And she said, Do you want me to apologize? And I didn't, I didn't want her to apologize because it wasn't for her to apologize. So whereas on that macro level, I can see where it would be very helpful. And I can't see where it would hurt. There are precedents set. Trudeau has apologized for what happened with a, a ship full of Sikhs that was denied entry into Canada and they were left in terrible conditions. Um There have been apologies for great wrongdoings. I don't see how it hurts. 
And I can see how it would help. But on a personal level, facing Dyer's progeny, if you like, it meant nothing to me because it wouldn't have made my grandfather's life better. It wouldn't have made my my father and his brother's life lives better. It wouldn't have changed my life. I think there'll probably be a lot more discussion around this this year because, of course, it is the centenary of the massacre. Why do you think that this is still an important or relevant or interesting topic to examine? Because there are people who are still alive who remember. You know, it is it is not that long ago. 100 years is not that long ago, actually. And, you know, if you imagine 1940, which is when the assassination took place, one of them saying... Um, shot Michael A. Dwyer through the heart. It's not that long ago. You know, we still commemorate, rightly, we have commemorated the end of World War II and, the you know, we commemorate the end of, end of wars. So it's very fresh in our minds and it should be fresh in our minds. And plus, you know, the Raj, the Raj is still such a, a, an enormous thing that is evoked so many times, particularly in our politics now. You know, people harken back to this golden era of British might. I think it's kind of useful to remember what that meant and what was needed to achieve that might. And if we don't know about it, we can't learn from it. That was Anita Arnand. The Patient Assassin, a true tale of massacre, revenge and the Raj is out now in the UK, published by Simon & Schuster. And in the US, it's due to be published in June by Scribner. And you can read a version of this interview in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which has recently gone on sale. Also in this month's edition, you'll find articles on Henry VIII, Leonardo da Vinci, Thatcherism, and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good retailers and in our digital formats now. And that is about it for today, but we'll be back on Monday to discuss landscape archaeology. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.